This morning's scripture reading is from 1 John 5, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. If you are able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you are unable to stand, join us now in lifting up your hearts. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give, give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, happy Mother's Day to you mothers. Um, absolutely. Uh, my, um, as Josh mentioned, I know today is a, uh, is a day that actually reminds us so much of what Scripture says, that we weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, but also celebrate with those who rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And it's, it is a mixed bag, as is all of life uh, in a fallen world. But my, uh, my mom um, is... Uh, is one of our congregation uh, attenders. She's not a member, but she watches on the live stream every Sunday. So happy Mother's Day. Uh, that's fun to get to say. And then Josh's mom watches and also Bill's mom watches. So we have a lot of mothers um, in our digital congregation uh, that are out there. So happy Mother's Day to, to all of you. Uh, I'm excited for us to open God's uh, word together. Uh, this morning, you can pray for Bill and Lisa. They are in Charlotte. Bill's our uh, lead pastor here, if you're new to Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, uh, Bill is in Charlotte uh, getting to kill, I think, uh, a couple, maybe three birds with one great stone, which is he gets to see his son, he gets to see his grandson, and he gets to preach at Hope Community uh, PCA. That is pastored by a, a friend of mine and a friend of his, Matt Ham, who's in a doctoral um, cohort program that I'm in together. So we can pray for them and celebrate uh, the work that the Lord is doing through him as he gives Matt a break, a much-needed break there in Charlotte at Hope uh, PCA. This morning, it is a fascinating, uh, it's been a long time coming. I don't know if, if you've been with us, you know that we have been studying uh, the letter known as 1 John together for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think we started uh, at the beginning of February. So we've been in 1 John for a long time. Some of you are the kind of person that if you've been with us, you think, man, this has taken forever. And um, others of you feel like, gosh, this has gone way too fast. I'm personally probably in the way too fast camp. I love First John. I feel like we could be in First John uh, for much longer. Others of you, today is the end of First John, and so you, I know you're sad 
But cheer up, it's Mother's Day. I don't know what else to say. Um, but, but there's more. There's more. We'll be in 2 John and then 3 John, and then we'll have a new series in the summer. But I am, I am so excited uh, for us to be together and conclude and have to get to help us conclude uh, 1 John together. All throughout, John has been writing, if you'll remember with me the context, John has been writing to a congregation of Christians in an area called Ephesus, that was, um, that's been together as a church for probably somewhere around 40 years. John is writing, most scholars will say, at the end of the first century, late 80s, uh, maybe early 90s, probably the late 80s, um, writing to a church that's been together now long enough that many of the people that were there at the beginning are no longer there. Um, John has been addressing that in a very poignant way throughout his letters, that the people that left, left and are not with us because they were never of us. They've left the community of faith because they really were never part of the faith. They never really believed. And yet, if you have ever experienced that, and I know many of you have, that's very uh, confusing and a disorienting experience, isn't it? When you have someone that you love and you've known, you've been in community with, or you've been in a small group with, you've worshiped with, and they leave the community of faith, and you, you just don't really know what to do with that. Uh, what to think? What does it really mean to be a Christian? They may oftentimes say, I am still a Christian. You know, I just don't believe the same thing you believe. And that was certainly the case for John's audience. They would still say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe that he really came in the flesh. He just appeared that way. Or I don't, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe he actually died for my sins. And I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe I actually have to obey him. And then he calls me to live a life that's shaped by the gospel. But I still believe in Jesus. Well, that's very confusing, isn't it? And John is writing to say, no, no, no. Listen, I want you to understand, you, you don't have to be confused. You can have confidence. You can have clarity that the gospel is clear. And that matters that you have clarity because that clarity and that confidence in what it means to know that you know that you know that you know Jesus is a source of comfort that the Lord longs for his children to experience. And so this morning, I hope that in the same way that all of these messages from 1 John have been a source of certainty and confidence, assurance and comfort, I pray that this would be a comfort for your heart this morning. Because the way in which John ends is the reason that it matters that you know you're a child of God is because you have the incredible privilege of having the Father's ear. And you're able to lean into that through a life of prayer. And so I'm excited for us to live that out even now. So let's go before the Lord and pray and ask him to bless this time together, knowing that he hears us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that the gospel is true. That as John says earlier in his letter, that how great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us that we might be called children of God, and so we are. Lord, by grace and grace alone, we are made the children of God. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hear you because we know that you hear us. Would you come by your word, correct us where we need it, encourage us where we need it, rebuke us where we need it, equip us, Lord, because we need it, that we might live more as the children of God that grace by faith makes us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you as we begin our study 
Imagine with me that you have a phone in your pocket. Many of you have a phone in your pocket. Some of you don't. Some of it's in your purse. Uh, Kids, some of you, you'll get it someday. I can't promise when, okay? Uh, But just imagine with me that all of you have a phone, and your phone gives you direct access this morning to the President of the United States of America. And if you call, he will actually answer you, okay? Now, with that thought in mind, I don't want you to say this out loud, but I want you to think to yourself that if that were really true and you had a direct line to the president's ear, what would you want to say to him? Or what would you want to tell him or ask him? Okay. Now, I recognize that I am in Hilton Head, South Carolina, And that right now, some of you might have some unpleasant things to say. And this is not intended to be a political statement, okay? It's not. And this would be the illustration I would have used 15 years ago or, you know, whatever it is, 10 years ago. But it's a great question, isn't it? Now, wherever you are on the political spectrum, here's what's amazing. If that were true, and maybe some of you are like, yeah, we're best friends. We talk all the time. Let's talk afterwards. I want to know what you did, right? But if that were true, if that was the position that you were in, here's the big idea. Then you would be in a position of absolutely incredible privilege, wouldn't you? In fact, I I tried to do a Google search. It's always fun to think about what is a pastor's Google search history? Like what are the things we get to look up in the process of sermon creation? Um, It is really hard to Google who has direct access to the president. Um, And I think the answer to that is actually almost no one. Uh, I'm pretty sure from from the limited Google research that I got to do, I think the answer is pretty much no one. Because no one can just, you know, everybody has to go through somebody to get to the president. Um, But even the people that are like a phone call away to, to sort of get on his schedule, they have done a lot to earn that privileged position. Uh, Those are people that are on the cabinet. Those are people like five-star generals who have fought decades of wars and led soldiers and been in combat and made awful decisions that no one has to make. And they they have earned the right to sit at the table to be a few phone calls away from the President of the United States. Or they have been what many of us would never want to be. They have been major political figures who have been decades-long Congress people, men or women. And they have gone through all of the things of of elections and slam, uh, slander campaigns and all of the things that you have to do to be in office for decades and be in a position to be on the cabinet and to be a phone call or two away from the president. They've done a lot to earn that privilege. But here's what's amazing to consider. There is a position that you could be in that would put you a phone call away from the president's ear that you don't have to do a thing to earn. And you know what that position is? His child. His child. Because if you're born into a family, you're brought into a family by adoption, whatever, if you're in a family, then the reality is you have a privileged position that other people could only dream of and work for a lifetime to earn. And it's just given to you as a birthright. And that's a powerful picture for us this morning, isn't it? Because when when John writes and concludes, and all this time he's been saying, you can really know that you're a child of God. 
You don't have to be confused. Let me clear it up. This is not true, and this is true. And, and the real children of God, people who are born of God, who know God, who are followers of Christ, they love other people, and they love Christians, and they believe in Christ, and they know that they're a sinner. They know they're a work in progress, but they're making progress because the Spirit of God's at work in their heart. I mean, he's just over and over and over again. The theme has been so prominent that you can know that you're a child of God. And then here at the very end of, of chapter five, at the end of the, of the letter, he brings it home by saying, and here's why that matters. Because you have the ear of direct access to the ear of someone far more important, far more powerful, far more significant, and get this, and far more loving and kind and good than the president of, of any country at any time, at any place, including ours. And who is that? It's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Savior of sinners, who is also your heavenly Father who hears you. And so the question for us this morning that we'll begin with and end with is, therefore, how will you use that access? Because he hears you all the time in every way. So what are you speaking? What are you saying? in your prayer life with your king. If you're a note-taking kind of person, and this is our outline for the morning, if this helps you, we're gonna talk about three questions. Why do we pray? What is our motivation? That's number one. Number two, how do we pray? What's our posture in prayer as we approach the Lord? And then lastly, for what do we pray? What's our focus in prayer? What's our motivation, our posture, and our focus? Let's start this morning and talk about what is our motivation? What, what moves us to pray? What moves us to pray? It's what we've just been talking about. It's that we are his children. Look with me at uh, 1 John uh, chapter 3. Go back just two chapters as, as John says so beautifully. Right in the heart of his letter is the heart of what he wants to communicate. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. What makes us children of God? It's everything that John's been unpacking. What makes us a child in the family of God? It's not anything that we've done. It's not any effort that we've exerted in the world. It's not that we're really good. It's not that we're really bad. It's what Christ has done. It's that God loved us enough to send his only begotten son from the comforts and the glories of heaven to come and live in this broken, sin-cursed, misery-filled world. And that he would succeed perfectly where we fail every single day in thought and word and deed. And would then die on a cross as our substitute and rise from the dead. That through faith in his work, the gospel might be true that we could become children of God. And if that's your story, if that's what you believe, then so you are. John would say to you this morning. And so what does that mean? What well, means we have the Father's heart and therefore we have the Father's ear. There's uh, things that I aspire to as a father that I fail at regularly. My children were not in the first service, but I did say this in the first service, which I'll say now there's a lot of things I, I wish I did as a father perfectly and this is not one of them, but it's one of the things I aspire to. Um, if you are a pastor, some of you are preacher's kids. Raise your hands if you're a preacher's kid. Some of you, I know at least, oh yeah, we, we stick together. We find each other. In life, you know, um, if you're a pastor's kid, every Sunday is bring your family to work day. Um, and that's got blessings and that's got challenges for, for everybody. 
for everybody involved. And um, oftentimes after the service, I love you all and you love me and you love Bill, you love Harrison, you love us as the pastoral staff. And so oftentimes if we've taught a class or preached a sermon or led worship or whatever we've done, you'll, you'll come and find us and you'll want to you know, catch up, which we love. And so there'll be, you know, not a long line, but there'll be a, a handful of people that want to talk. And my desire always as a, as a pastor, and I have not always done this well, so I am also, I'm sorry. But my aspiration is that if you come to me and you're talking to me and it is not a pastoral emergency, you're not in tears, you're not sharing a deep heartache, you know, that's going on in your life. If, if it's not that sort of a situation, if I am talking to you and they, my, one of my children come to me and I see them in my peripheral vision, then my aspiration is in that moment to pivot from talking to you to say, hey, can you give me just one second? And then to turn and to bend down and to say, hey, what do you need? And the reason I do that is because I will not always be your pastor because either the Lord will move me or I will die, okay? Like there are at least two options, okay? But I will always be their father. Does that make sense? I will always be their father. And so they will always have my ear. And what I wanna say to you this morning from God's word is if you are his child, you always have his ear. Because Christ has earned that for you. He bled and died and rose for that to be true. And so you are always a prayer away from the Father's heart. Matthew chapter 7, in this section of the Bible we call the Sermon on the Mount, there's this, there's this place where Jesus is talking about prayer in chapter 7. He says, ask, you can probably finish it, right? Ask and it will be given to you, right? Um, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. He's talking about prayer. God will hear you. This is how you should pray, etc. And then he gives this, this, um, this phrase that's both a praise of the Father's heart and a pointing out, a convicting pointing out of the way in which we are not the same. And there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, he says, if you then who are evil, woo, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, just to pause really fast, you think, well, what, who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the people in the crowd, which AKA means he's talking about who? He's talking about you, he's talking about you and me. If you who are evil, just to camp out on that, what does that mean? It means that at by virtue of living in a fallen world, our problem is that we don't just live in a world filled with sin of which we are victims, but we are also, our hearts are broken and fallen and cursed by sin. We're, why do we sin? We sin because we are sinners. So we are not just victims of a sinful world of other people. We are victimizers that hurt other people with our own sin as well. And Jesus acknowledges that sinful condition when he says, even you who are evil, even you who are evil, give what? Good gifts to your children, right? Even mafia bosses give their kids Christmas presents <laughs> because they're made in the image of God. And if that is true, even for sinners like us, for the worst of us, 
then he would also, Jesus would also say, then how much more will your perfect heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? You have the father's ear because Christ has won the father's heart. And therefore, if you are a follower of Christ, you can pray. And that is a privilege that we often take for granted, is it not? But it came at a great cost. And it comes with a great benefit. Why do we pray? We pray because of the grace of God that gives us a direct line to the Father's ear, through the Father's heart, through the work of the Son. That's why we pray. Well, how do we pray? How do we pray? Two things that we see in our text this morning. How do we pray? We pray with a posture of both confidence and surrender. Of both confidence and surrender. Look at four times in this passage. John wants us to make sure that we don't miss it, that God hears us. Look with me at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to what? His will he hears us. And if, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We're going to talk about that anything word here in a second. But how does John want his people to pray? He wants them to pray with, he uses the word, confidence. Sometimes we pray and we just think, gosh, does anyone, is anyone out there? I don't know if you ever remember the, the old Verizon commercial, right? It just, can you hear me now? You know, do I have one bar on my direct line to God? Doesn't help me a whole lot. But Jesus wants us to know that, that we always have ultra 5G, wideband, whatever access to the Father's heart. He always hears us because Christ has earned the right for that for us. And therefore, how do we pray? We pray with confidence. I have a grandfather now with the Lord, Clarence William Baker, uh, my mom's father. Uh, we didn't know each other super well. He was in uh, Bluff City, Tennessee, near Johnson City, Tennessee. If any Tennesseans are in the room, uh, maybe you know where that is. And he, he owned um, Baker Construction Company, which, you know, gosh, built, all, built the raceway in Bristol, built all kinds of stuff. And, but he also, he just was a business guy ever since he was a, a boy, um, I'll tell you all kinds of cool stories about that. But one of the businesses that he had is he had this massive, massive flea market. Now, I know when I use the word, words flea market, some of you are like, ew. But, um, but it was a nice flea market. It, it's a thing. It can happen. And it was huge. I mean, just acres and acres and acres, like eight or nine buildings, just all kinds of stuff. He owned all this stuff. And I did not know him really well. We lived far enough away that we did not see him a ton. And so I did not, he was a man of few, few words, did not know him really well, also didn't have a ton of opportunity. And one day I'm with him, with my grandfather, and we're kind of trying to get to know each other. It's like, you know, two people that don't talk trying to get to know each other. Uh, and I'm sitting on the bench with him, and he was trying to ask me, I know this now, what can I, can I get you anything? Like, like, I own this place. Is there anything that you might want? And he probably asked me that like eight or nine times all day long. And finally, at the end of the day, I said, you know what? I would really love a Coke and maybe like a comic book. And that's, that's I thought that was a big ask. Um, and then about three weeks, uh, the week later, we were, we're at my aunt's house 
and, um, and I'm getting to know my cousins, and they have, like, multiple horses. And, uh, like, hey, where did those come from? I'm like, well, yeah, your, your grandfather got me that. He's like, man, what did you ask for? I got a Coke and a comic book. You know, it's like, okay, well, I guess I could have gone bigger. Um, the Lord wants us to ask him. We have a big God who invites us to ask him for big things. Now, we're going to talk about what those big things are here in just a second. But he wants us to not beat around the bush and to to pour out our hearts and say, Lord, this is what I really want. He's a God of a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. And there's nothing that he does not have the power to give us. It is never a question of God's ability. It is always a question of God's will and whether we are really asking for the things that align with his kingdom priorities and his hearts. But he wants us to pray with confidence and, of course, also with surrender. One of the great qualifiers that's in this text is that we would ask in verse 14 with confidence toward him that if we ask anything according to his what? His will. He hears us. Some of you have grown up in environments of church or you've been around different churches and you've been in an environment where it's often described as a prosperity gospel. That is, you know, God is good and he owns everything and therefore I can ask for anything. And by anything, he means everything, right? So if I want a a cherry red Ferrari for free, I can get it. I just got to ask for it. And the reality is that is not what God is saying. Because if we ask, Jesus says, which John reiterates here, is that we would ask for anything toward him with confidence that is according to his will. And so we can only know his will if we know his what? Word. It's Mother's Day. and I'm sure none of you have ever done this. Um, but on occasions, uh, Mother's Day is a time. Sometimes people are giving gifts. Sometimes they're not. I'm not here to judge. It's just a reality. Um, But often, sometimes if we're giving people a gift, you might be tempted to give people that you uh, a gift that is something that they might like and that you might love to have around, okay? (laughs) That is knowing laughter. Um, The Lord be with you. Um, You know, and that's a thing that we do, isn't it? I think they'll they'll like it. I'm going to love it, you know, and I'll give it to them. But, but the reality is, look, the people that we love the most, we give them things that we might like. In fact, we might hate. But we give it to them because it is what they will love. And so when we look at the heart of God and the word of God and begin to understand the will of God, then all of a sudden now the word shapes us. That we sit under scripture and it shapes our hearts. That the more that we know the Father, the more that we become like the Father, that we become like Jesus, so we ask like Jesus. And of course, even Jesus is the perfect picture of this, isn't he? In Luke chapter 22, 42, it's the night before Jesus is going to be betrayed, and he's in the garden, he's sweating literally droplets of blood because of just the, the, I don't know a better word other than the weight of the moment of the crucifixion that he always knew was coming, but now is upon him. And Jesus in Luke twenty two forty two prays and cries out, Father, if you are willing, 
Remove this cup from me. This cup being the cup of the crucifixion of God's wrath that sin will be poured out on him. And yet then what does he say? But nevertheless, not my will, but what? Your will be done. And so that's the, if that's the case for Jesus, how much more is that not the case for us? I don't know what you pray for. I don't know how often you pray. I don't know how confident you are in your prayer. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But I do know this, that the Lord, only in the gospel do you get this, this ironic, beautiful, paradoxical combination of both confidence and surrender. That I'm going to bring it all to you. And I'm going to do it with an open hand. Because God is my Father who loves me, and I have his heart, and I have his ear. And I'm going to ask boldly, but I'm going to ask and surrender. And therefore, in that posture of prayer, what's the focus? What's the purpose? What's the perspective? What do we ask for? Well, we ask for the things that God wants for his kingdom purposes. And when we look at Scripture and we ask the question, what does God most want in the lives of his people? What does he want in the life of his people? He wants repentance. He wants repentance. Look with me again at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. It's in this context of prayer, the boldness of prayer, that in verse 16, John then says, And therefore, if anyone sees his brother, that's a gender-inclusive word, brother or sister, a fellow member of the church, a fellow follower of Christ, committing a sin not leading to death, that person he shall ask, and God will give that person him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But firstly, what is John's main idea here? John's main idea is that what, what do we do as Christians? What is one of the greatest things that we can do for one another? It's to pray. It's to pray. You know, gosh, when we want something done, oh man, men and women, this is, this is both genders. We just do it differently. Man, when we, when we want somebody to do something, we, we often know how to get it done. You probably feel bad to say amen to that, but you know, right? You can manipulate. You can sweet talk. You can nag. Any naggers in the room want to raise their hands? There's, there's a way that we can buy nice gifts. There's a way we can power through. There's a way to get it done. There's a way. But the greatest way is not to buy, to manipulate, to backtalk, to, it's to pray. I had a mentor in Cincinnati who his mentor had told him this, and therefore he told me this, that we always talk to God about people far more than we ever talk to people about God. We talk to God about people far more than we ever talk to people about God. And why is that? Because who is the only person who actually has the ability to change a person's heart? It's the Lord. And so who do we need to talk to? I want to talk to your manager. Great, talk to the Lord. <laughs> He's the manager. You want to see your kids know Jesus? Talk to Jesus. You want to see your wife know Jesus? Talk to Jesus. 
we talk to God about people more than we talk to people about God. Ugh. In this passage, John here talks about we pray, we ask God when we see somebody committing a sin that does not lead to death. And then he goes on to say, and I do not say this about someone who's committing a sin that does lead to death. And you're like, what is that? Is that suicide, which some of you have personally experienced people in your life committing suicide? A pastor in college who committed suicide that discipled me, that I love Pastor Rikas, I love him, loved him. And some of you just read that you don't know what to do with this text. And so let's talk about that just for a minute, just sort of pastorally. All throughout John's letter, when John uses the words life and he uses the word death, what John is referring to is not physical death or physical life. All throughout his letter, what John is describing is spiritual life and spiritual death. And we see that time and time again. Look, just a few verses back, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. John writes this, that whoever has the Son, that is Jesus, has what? Life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Look two chapters back. Uh, chapter th 3, verse 14, John writes, We know that we have passed out of death and into life. Why? Because we love the brothers, our fellow Christians. And whoever does not love abides in what? Death. All throughout his letter, John is not using the words life and death to describe the physical reality of life and death, but the spiritual reality of life and death. And so what is a sin that leads to death? It's a sin that leads to the spiritual death. And that, in fact, friends, that is what, that's what hell is. That's a word that we don't ever, probably should never get comfortable in talking about. It's such, such a scary, sad, tragic reality. But God loves us enough to tell us the truth, doesn't he? And if you want to understand hell at all, what hell is, is hell is us saying, I don't want the life that you've offered. And I've lived my whole life that way. God, you want to give me blessing? I don't want blessing. Your freedom feels like restriction and I don't want it. And so you are stiff arming the Lord and you are not repenting and you're not repenting and you're not receiving Christ. And you do that over and over and over again. And what you die in is you die in the very thing that you have lived in, which is sin. And then you get to continue to experience the curses of God for all eternity because that is what you have decided you wanted. And that is the scary and sad reality of a life that rejects the gospel forever. And that is the pattern of sin that leads to eternal spiritual death forever. Now, interestingly enough, some of you, for you, that is, that is not like, that is not a distant theological idea, is it? Because what I just described is not a concept. It's like, it's your mom. Or it's your husband. Or it's your daughter. It's your son. And some of you, you think of people who have great exposure to the gospel and no evidence in their life of understanding it. And so you read this passage and you think, wait, is John telling me I'm not supposed to pray for them? And really the, the reality is John would say to you, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not telling you not to pray for them. I'm just telling you that's not the point. In fact, look with me again. Look at the way in which John writes that in verse 16. He goes on to say, there is a sin that leads to death. 
unrepentance for a lifetime, but I do not say that one should pray for that. In other words, I'm not, that's not the point right now. That's not what we're talking about. You want to pray for your spouse or for your friend that's rejected Christ for 40 years in hopes that they'll finally accept Christ? Please do. Some of you, that's your testimony, isn't it? And you are so thankful that for 40 years, God did not give up on you and, no, and somebody else didn't either as they were praying for you, right? It's great news. But God is calling us to pray for one another when we are stuck in sin. What I need in my life when I am stuck in sin is I do need people to speak into my life, but far more than any word that you might say to me, I need you to say lots of words to God on my behalf. I love the way Josh likes to um, allude to, I think Colossians 3, 16 and 17, where it says, and the word will dwell in them richly, in you richly. Through what? Through preaching? No, it actually says through singing, through psalms, of, spiritual songs and songs and giving thanks to God. You sing one another forward. When we sing in a worship service, we are literally singing sermons to each other to spur each other on. And we not only sing each other forward, we pray each other forward. And we need that for one another. We need it. And in light of that, let's make sure that the things for which we're praying for one another are the things that we most need. So, uh, so convicting, I'll mess it up. But John Piper loves to talk about prayer and how often the greatest mistake that we make in prayer is that we treat prayer like it's a phone in the midst of our cruise ship to the concierge desk instead of a direct line to our general in the midst of a battleship in the midst of enemy territory. And so often when we pray, it's just, that's what we're asking. It's like, how can, Lord, how can you make me more comfortable? I would like fluffier slippers and a better robe. And if you could bring breakfast soon, that would be great. And instead, what we see in this passage that we've seen throughout this letter is that we live in enemy, spiritual enemy territory. What Andrew read earlier that John writes here is what? Is that the world lies in the power of the evil one. And then John goes on just to, to say, not only is that the challenge out there, but that's the challenge in here. That's why the literal last thing that he says in this letter is keep yourself from what? Idols. John Calvin, the, the late great theological scholar, said, our hearts are idle factories. We just produce things to latch onto, to put in front of God on the priority list. And we live in a world, in a sea of options. We're like alcoholics walking through just the bar streets at night, surrounded by temptation. And so what do we do? We need to pray for each other that we would pursue the very holiness ourselves that we pray for for one another. And we can do that, why? Because we have the Father's ear. One last passage I wanna end here this morning. I think it's amazing. You think, oh gosh, what hope do I have to navigate a world of temptation? In Luke 22, 31-32, um, Jesus is talking to Peter the, the spokesman sort of of the 12 apostles. Jesus is preparing his own heart to go to the cross 
preparing his disciples for the reality that, that's in front of them. And he says this to Simon, to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, right? Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, to possess you, to take hold of you, that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned again, that is return to me, I want you to strengthen your brothers. What is it that preserved Peter in the midst of great temptation? When the rooster crowed and the, the, the guards came and, and everything, and his world was just being pulled apart. What is it that preserved Peter and held him together? What was it? It was the prayers of Jesus. You are not alone in your prayers. You have a Savior who has lived for you, who has died for you, has risen from you, who prays with you and for you even now. He has earned the Father's heart that you might have the Father's ear, that you would be confident and surrender and lift up every request. Whether it's a Hail Mary in the car or it's hours on your knees pleading for the things in your life, God hears you. So what will you say to him? May you pray the heart of God, the will of God from the word of God to a father who loves you because a savior who's rescued you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread and the viewing of his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you, take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. If you're here this morning and this and you are trusting in the work of the one who is pictured here, then this table is for you. Come and enjoy these elements. May they be the hugs and the kisses of God for you this morning that as real as they are to your taste buds today, so real is the Father's love for you. Come repenting, come rejoicing, come and remember the work of Christ for you. If you are here this morning and this is not yet, this is not yet your faith, your Savior, then this table is not yet for you. And we hope that that would change and that we would have the privilege of being part of the story of how that happens. But this morning, we pray that you would sit in your chairs and that you would see all of these sinners who are coming forward to be nourished by Christ as an embodied picture of the gospel of a God who is gracious to save sinners of all kinds.